Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi everyone, I'm Guy Shaw, a partner in the Hydrogen Struggles London office and the leader of our Web3 and digital assets practice in EMEA. I'm joined also by my colleague Tom Clark from our Dubai office who co-leads our technology practice in the region and he also leads our venture capital practice for the Middle East. In today's podcast, we are super excited to be joined by Najam Kidway and Michael Zhao, co-founders and managing partners at C1, a newly launched fund focused on secondary investments in digital asset-related companies and infrastructure. Najam is a Dubai-based UK entrepreneur and investor in disruptive technology companies in Asia, Europe and the US. He has been investing in fintech and e-commerce since 2010 and is the co-founder and board member of Equiam, a leading private markets focused secondaries VC manager. Michael is a Dubai-based and Singapore-based fintech entrepreneur. He is also the founder and CEO of Clickle, a virtual asset service provider and digital payment processing engine VPay, and has been investing in fintech since 2015. Further, he is also the co-chairman of the Hong Kong Blockchain Association. Najam, Michael, welcome and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Great to be here, Guy. Thank you. Hey, guys. Nice to be connected. So to kick off this conversation, could you walk us through your journey into crypto and what drew you into the space in the first place? Yes. So, uh, Guy, uh, it's quite an unconventional journey. You know, I started off as a tech entrepreneur and I've been fortunate enough to take a number of companies public, including Nuance, Egg, and also having a number of M&A exits in the tech space. But I actually got exposed to crypto accidentally in sort of 2015, 2016. I had an exit in China and unfortunately they couldn't pay me in uh, US dollars or sterling or euro or Durham. Um, but they offered to pay me my fee in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And at that point, I knew very little about it. So I called a couple of friends who were investment bankers in London and said, hey, what's this thing called Bitcoin? And they said, Nat, you know, this is either going to go to the moon or it will either go nowhere. So view it as an option. And that's exactly what I did. And I was fortunate enough to have a very meaningful amount of Bitcoin and Ethereum and and then the market exploded, right? Sort of uh, the ICO fray, uh, phase had kicked off and 2017 came along. And I started to learn about this space and I was fortunate enough to invest in Quantum and WeChan and Robinhood and Coinbase and a number of other projects in around this sort of crypto ecosystem. And that really led to really understanding the fundamentals of the space, the technicals of the space. And it gave me a lot of confidence that this was really going to be the future of finance and the digitization of finance and the tokenization of financial services. And that's how I accidentally sort of got into crypto and then had the good fortune of meeting Michael just under three years ago now, um, where we did the world's first crypto SPAC, uh, which we listed on NASDAQ and we raised $230 million. Uh, at that time, we were sort of several times oversubscribed, uh, over about $1.2 billion in demand. And we learned a lot about regulation. We learned a lot about the, the sort of crypto ecosystem. 
our thesis there was really to go and find the coin base of emerging markets. Um, and we looked at about 300 companies uh, over a 12 month period. So maybe I'll just pass over to Michael uh, to share his journey as well. Well, uh, my journey with crypto is a little bit different from uh, Nash, who came from, who got involved from a direct use case, right? I was actually uh, first attracted by crypto because of the volatility. You know, as an option trader, worked for investment bank, and later on work as a regulator for a central bank, right? Normally, the volatility is actually a very important part for any uh, financial asset class. So I got really, really attracted because back in the early days, right, 2014, 2015, so crypto has actually moved 10, 20% on a single day, right? That's how we get involved. I guess for the past uh, six, seven, eight years, right, we pretty much went through all the up and downs and then very happy to see the market start to grow into a proper alternative asset class. And well, it does cost me a, a little bit more gray hair. But uh, more than ever before, we're actually very happy to see more and more institutional players come over to the asset class and more and more regulators start to look at this as a, a growing emerging technology. Michael, Naj, what is the genesis of C1 Advisors and, uh, and why now? When we did the SPAC, the goal was really to go and find the coin base of emerging markets or a business that was equivalent to that. Uh, an exchange, a bank, a wallet, or a custodian. And I think what we saw that valuations had really sort of gone 360. Companies that were valued at like a billion dollars uh, a year and a half back, in some cases are now gone to zero, and in some cases are valued at 50 million, 80, 90% discounts on the last primary funding round. So when we looked at that journey, we had seen 300 companies. Uh, we had probably done really detailed analysis and DD on about 100 of those companies. And in fact, probably about 10 of those businesses were ready to, to go public if the markets had been a little bit more stable. So really, the thesis was driven by the fact that we've seen a number of data points where investors, there was no IPO market. That market continues to be closed, at least for the foreseeable future. And the barometer of that is, you know, if Stripe cannot go public in the, in the current environment, then it doesn't bode well for, for most other companies that want to IPO. We also saw that there was uh, on the back of FTX, uh, the market really, the crypto winter went into full swing. Uh, a lot of those valuations uh, when the market was in a bull run were just unsustainable for a lot of these businesses. So uh, because we had been doing secondaries for over a decade as early investors in Forge Global, Equiem, and, and many other platforms, we had seen that there was an opportunity to build a platform to provide liquidity to existing investors, management teams in the digital asset space. And we'd seen that nobody was really doing that with a focus on digital assets uh, and purely on digital assets. So that led to, to Michael, myself, and our third partner, Mike Lempress, who's currently the chairman of Silvergate Bank, uh, an ex-partner at Andreessen, um, and chairman of Bitstamp and Revolut, and a number of other things. We all collectively saw that a number of these companies that were fundamentally being well run, there was an opportunity to go and acquire uh, stakes in these businesses at a very meaningful discount. And the way we think about that is that we're really looking for companies that are sort of series C and above, right? Sort of at least a $300 million valuation and equity investment, but we're not investing in tokens or cryptocurrencies. And we're fundamentally investing in companies that are licensed and regulated. 
And I think the key word here is regulation. It's one of the things that's been a challenge in the industry of late. But Michael. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll focus a little bit more on the timing wise, right? You know, um, to exactly reason why we're doing here now rather than last year or next year is actually the timing is right, right? When it comes to financial market, right? You can have a good will, but it's even more important to have a good timing, right? Because timing will ultimately determine the return on a risk adjusted uh, perspective. So if two years ago was actually the starting year for institutional investor coming to the market, then last year is actually the formal year of institutional players. Every single one, their dogs trying to get on to some star company so that they don't, they're not left behind the game. And then we're seeing the, the, the correction on a market where a lot of company are either suffering or bleeding out because they are fueled by FOMO. And now we feel like from the investing perspective, actually a lot of good company, there's a decent value from where right now if we come in, where we provide investment market uh, fundings and domain knowledge while the market go through the consolidation stage, very easy will find the winner. So I think the um, timing right now is actually uh, ban on. And when I talk about ban, uh, when we talk about timing, it's also, you know, it's like traditional financial market. There's always a primary market. And then you create a secondary market. In crypto, it's happening so fast. The market has been last for 10 years. And two years ago, institution and regulators start to look at us in a proper way. So there's no secondary market. So when we talk about timing, it's actually timing for C1 to come over here. Not only we try to find the right company to deliver a starting return, but also be the first one there to try new things, to apply what we have learned on the secondary market from traditional finance and apply it over to the new asset class. We're actually essentially creating a brand new secondary market, which could be a very, very important uh, element for this market to scale. This is why we think it's actually a really, really exciting and attractive opportunity. And I think, Tom, just to uh, mention another point here, one of the biggest advantages we have is that we have spent a year, 18 months in some cases, on doing due diligence on these companies. We know them intimately well for everything from sort of, you know, accounting to product to strategy to talent uh, across the board. And that is one strategic advantage that we have against our peers is that that work is relatively current, building relationships. I think, as you guys also know, in the talent business, is communication is very important. And when you've got trade fine, you've got traditional finance, and then you've got this sort of decentralized world, how can you bridge that communication between somebody that's used to you know, wearing a pinstripe suit and working in the city to somebody who's sitting at a, a desk in a funky office in Hong Kong, right? So different culture, but you need to provide that bridge. And I think one of the things is that we have a team that really understands uh, regulation, understands both of those worlds intimately well. And we have that ability to bridge that communication, speak the language of all of the uh, players in the ecosystem. That's super interesting. And you spoke a bit about the conditions that led to the timing and feeling why right now is is the moment. And obviously, it's been a really challenging, but quite fascinating 12 months or so for the space, especially with some of the high profile regulatory interventions of late. In your view, where do you think the industry has gone wrong in recent months? I think clarity is very important. 
regulation, as long as it's clear and everybody knows where they stand, makes life much easier. And I think in the United States, one of the biggest challenges, and particularly with the SEC, has been that lack of clarity. And I think that's caused problems. Obviously, FTX didn't help. They had a very strong lobbying. They, they spent over a billion dollars in, in lobbying Congress. So the reality was that I think FTX really took everybody by surprise to an extent and sort of said, what is really going on here? Uh, do we really understand what we're doing? Are we really thoroughly doing our due diligence? So when you look at FTX, I mean, Sequoia, typically, you would be very confident uh, that they would have done their homework, they would have done their DD. Uh, they didn't do a good job in that case. And obviously, a number of people had followed on investing in uh, FTX on the back of Sequoia's investment. I think in Europe, it's slightly different as long as you have rules and then you build. In the US, you have a lot of people that are pushing for innovation and then really trying to figure out how does this fit. So when you think about the last several months, obviously it has been challenging. But I think if you think about what's happening in the world today, I'm very optimistic. Uh, and I think news over the last week has been nothing but stellar, right? Having sort of BlackRock and Fidelity and Investec and Franklin Templeton, you know, institutional capital now uh, that will come into this space, hopefully before year end. And if that does happen, you're going to see tens of billions of dollars uh, with institutional grade capital, institutional controls coming into play. And I, and I think we have a lot to be very optimistic about on the back of the last several months. And look, bottom line is, there were bad actors, and, and the good news is those bad actors are being taken out. The industry is becoming a lot less speculative than it used to be. And I think, you know, regulation is a key driver of that. If you take the stance of China, three years ago, basically blanket ban on crypto, and then really in the last three months has now given Hong Kong basically the framework to go out and become uh, probably one of the leading crypto hubs uh, in the world. So you are seeing governments take this seriously. You're seeing things that are being implemented around CBDCs, around stable coins. Uh, Jerome Powell, I think uh, yesterday just said, uh, I see digital assets as an asset class that has staying power. As the chairman of the Federal Reserve, I I'm very encouraged and excited. And I think this space is only going to grow from here. Yeah, I echo what Nash mentioned, right? I think it's hard to actually say what the industry have done wrong. We always say crypto is actually a different animal compared to other asset classes. For other asset classes, more from a recent return perspective. But crypto is more like a derivative for blockchain and technology. And a blockchain technology, there are actually two of the most use case. One is actually for payment, another for financial returns, right? That's why you will say, the regional and the global regulators has been taking a different view. They're also learning, right? How do we actually regulate this as a financial market asset class? And then how do we come up with supporting rules, right? To leverage the payment functionality. I think a very important part is that everything moves just so fast. And then uh, either for market participants like us from investing perspective, either you're a retail or institutional investor or regulators. A lot of things that we are actually learning on the go, right? Rather than traditional finance, right? Traditional finance is actually a experience-based investment approach. Everyone can say that, oh, you know what, based on previous experience, now we do this. But in crypto, every day there's a new scene. So I think this is the biggest gap. 
You mentioned FTX and, and maybe where some of their shortcomings were. What will you be expecting your portfolio of companies to focus on in order to navigate regulation today and, and actually regulation as it evolves over the next months and years? We both lost money in FTX, so it's a little bit painful for us. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> apologies. Yeah, no, no problem, right? I think I think given the focus of our fund, focusing more on the infrastructure part, and we think even though the early, the market overall is in a very early stage, but actually the opportunity on the infrastructure type of play side is actually uh, focused heavily on how do you being compliant. Are regulated, and that is always the, the universal standard for any financial service company. If you were to actually compete and scale, obviously the product need to be solid, the marketing strategy need to be good, but still a strong emphasis on being regulated and compliant is where we want our portfolio companies to keep on focusing on. And as we said, right, crypto operate in a borderless way, and then even all the regulators. They are also learning themselves, and there's no universal crypto law, crypto rules regulating. So it's actually very, very important to make a decision: which region do I go for, right? Which license do I acquire? Because the market is also getting smarter.、It、used to be, hey, I'm regulated. From where? From who? How are you gonna do that? So, so I think I think there's a lot of technical part. Committing to being compliant and regulated is actually not an easy decision, and it's also very costly. To be able to set up the office within the jurisdiction, set up you know make sure your server is compliant, the team anti money laundering officer, so that's a huge investment. But I think this is in the long term, it will really pay back. And I think、um, you know one of the other key points here is talent, because without talent, you have nothing. So ultimately, there's still a lot of learning going on. One of the things that we realized with really what I would say first time entrepreneurs in the sort of crypto economy. These were young people, never built a company before. Maybe from a software engineering background, maybe a, more of an introverted personality, had never raised capital before, had never sort of built a commercial product that's now being potentially used by tens of millions of people. So there is a challenge of putting the right people around the company, making sure that there's a good cultural understanding in in, in the companies that we invest in, that they have the right talent. And sometimes talent also needs to know when to move to the side and bring in a more, let's say, grey hairs that basically bring that experience to bear. So when I think about everything that Michael said, I completely agree with that. I think one of the biggest challenges is can you get the right talent around the table that can actually deliver in this environment, which is incredibly fast-paced. I mean, it's like twenty-five hours a day, eight days a week. It is full on, right? And it never sleeps, and it never stops, and it's global, and it's in every jurisdiction. So, having the right people in a distributed format, because that sort of centralized office function for crypto doesn't work、uh, as well. You'll have teams in Latin America. You'll have people sitting in in Europe. You'll have people sitting in Asia. You'll have the C-suite traveling all over the world, maybe not in a physical office. So. Understanding and nurturing that talent and having the right culture also becomes very important for our portfolio companies. And another key thing is international expansion. So while the U.S. has really sort of shut off crypto for the time being, a lot of these companies are now migrating to different jurisdictions. So we see talent moving to London, Dubai, Hong Kong, Sydney, Singapore. 
Brazil. There's a lot of jurisdictions which are benefiting, unfortunately, due to the lack of clarity in the United States. Yes, and I mean, these topics are very close to our heart, as you can probably imagine, Naj. And in your opinion, what do you think the industry needs to be very conscious of when thinking about the right talent for leadership teams? And what will get you excited as an investor looking at the composition of talent around a management team? It's actually quite a difficult question to answer because there's so many things that you need to look at uh, when you're hiring great people. I think first is you've got to have great domain expertise and ability to execute. So a lot of time when you come from, let's say, a trade fight, right? You know, you have your PA, everything is organized for you. Life is very structured. And when you move into the crypto economy, life is actually quite unstructured. And that's probably one of its strengths. So you need people that are very, very comfortable in hyper growth environments. They're sort of organized and disorganized at the same time, if that, if that makes sense. But you need people that are, you know, what I would say are, are young, energetic, enthusiastic, have a global view, an international outlook, appreciation of different cultures. And I think one of the key things that makes companies really stand out from average companies is outstanding execution. So as a leader in a business, you really need to understand what product are you building? What product are you selling? And ultimately, you got to make money. So you've got to have people around you that can actually build something that is useful, people that are prepared to pay for it. There is a strong use case for it. And don't build technology for technology's sake, but build technology, build products and services that actually solve a fundamental problem and keep iterating as well. So when you look at sort of CTO talent, you need people that are very, very comfortable in sort of getting product out of the door, optimizing as, as time goes by understanding data and analytics. So, you know, data is the new oil, as we all know, right? So at the end of the day, really being able to understand your B2B consumer or your B2C consumer. And again, it ties in with what Michael was saying earlier. All of this ties into good regulatory understanding as well. So you're going to need people that are doing AML and KYC, if you're particularly dealing with retail in, in sort of the crypto economy. It's not like there's a a 30-year talent pool and thousands of people that would fit that criteria. We find in our own portfolios, it's a bit like looking uh, for a needle in a haystack to find really the right person. And also, as you know, there are different evolutions of a company. You know, when you're 20 people, it's a different skill set. When you're 50 people, it's a different skill set. When you're 100, 500, and 1,000, it's a different skill set. So we see some people can actually go all the way and some people actually can't. And sometimes they recognize that themselves and, and they'll focus on a particular aspect. Or sometimes it becomes a little bit more difficult where it becomes more of a direct conversation where you say, this is the ceiling and, and, and maybe it's time to, to think about something else. Yeah, I, I want to add on two other uh, parts, right? One is actually a curiosity. Imagine, right, if you uh, just put a high school uh, kids, you give them, put them on a Telegram chat for, for two days, right? Pretty much you get more what's going on in the market than, than even me if I don't follow the market. So I think you need to be uh, you know, knowledge hungry. The second part is actually intensity, right? This is why I, I, we figured a lot of the uh, TriFi people when they move to crypto, they, they feel a little uh, lost. Because you know normally people say, let me check my schedule when, when we can do that. But when it comes to crypto, is that you need to do something like talk now. I think you need to really have the intensity. 
doesn't mean that 24-7, but you need to have the intensity and then be curious all the time. And just following on from, from that question, when it comes to leadership and, and talent in this sector, where are the hotspots globally? Where do you see the talents are deriving from? I see that Dubai today, uh, UAE, a lot of talent coming into the market and building real product. We see that in Hong Kong. We see that in Singapore. We see that in London. You're starting to see pockets of that also spring up in Europe, Paris, Zurich, Berlin. It really boils down, Tom, to having clear regulatory framework where you can get licensed, where you can actually get a good standard of living, good infrastructure, depending on where you are in your stage of life. If you have to think about schools, it's a different thing. So you need infrastructure around the ecosystem to support your lifestyle, right? So that's also very, very important. I think with these sort of, particularly, I think Dubai and Hong Kong in particular, are doing a really good job on being able to provide great infrastructure, good talent pools, claim sort of a, a pretty clear regulatory framework. The one weakness in this whole ecosystem is banking, right? And uh, Michael and I can talk all day long on how challenging it is to get a bank account for a digital asset-based business. There's no real jurisdiction today in the world that can sort of say we make banking painless for digital assets. It will take some time to get there. But I think places like Dubai and Hong Kong are definitely taking the lead in, in trying to get there. But there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, that does feel like a really significant bottleneck for the industry. As a final question here to both of you, what do you think the industry needs to do to keep moving forward? I think that every single one who are in the market or thinking about contributing to this market, moving over this market, everyone needs to actually start doing something which is right and long term. And then collectively, we can create a market, right? Because we don't have another five, 10 years for this market to grow and scale. We really need to do things, um, slow down our pace, right? Because I always say crypto, they talk about to the moon, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, from where we are now to the moon, there's still a long, long way to go. So I think we should be uh, focusing on value creation. Uh, we should actually focus on uh, taking less risk, right? We're talking about adjust risk-adjusted returns. And everyone's thinking about how do we actually supporting each other and getting the regulators comfortable with what we're trying to do. And only when that happens, we'll see the market a lot easier and then less Great hairs for everyone. The industry is still very, very early. We're very, very nascent in this space. I mean, I've been fortunate enough uh, to be around when the dot-com boom started in sort of 90, yeah, 96. Um, and, you know, I remember my mom used to say, what's this internet thing? Is it going to last six weeks? And now, you know, it, it's fabric. It's utility. You can't live without the internet. And I think what we're going to see in uh, the sort of digital assets, crypto economy space in the next five to 10 years is fundamentally how we consume financial services and digital assets. Uh, people will not carry cash going forward, right? If you think about how AI seems to be very much the flavor of the month now with uh, ChatGPT, that's one aspect of sort of information gathering, information recall, which is fundamentally changing the way we educate people, the way we learn, the way we consume content. And then you think about what's happening in the crypto economy. So think about how everything is changing, right? From a geopolitical level, the dominance of the US dollar on the decline, 
from digital currencies and CBDCs to tokenization of all types of assets to uh, people not carrying cash anymore. So uh, it's an incredibly exciting time. Fantastic. Naj, Michael, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It was, uh, it was very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.